0: So let me welcome you all to this uh, seminar tonight about how finance is tackling sustainability. My name is Sam Fankhauser. I'm a co-director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the school. We do a lot on climate finance and sustainable finance in my institute, actually. So tonight's topic is uh, very close to my heart. If you're interested, you can look at the website of the Grantham Research Institute, where you you will find one of our nine programs devoted to this area. But tonight's event isn't at all about the Grantham Research Institute. It's in fact um, uh, sponsored by the LSE Sustainability Team, together with LSE's Finance Society. So it's a joint event, and it's actually part of... um, a whole series of lectures about sustainability in practice. Um, before I introduce you to our speakers, let me give you the usual sort of housekeeping events. You will, if you're a regular to our seminars, you will know them pretty well. Please put your phones on silence. Um, don't switch them off in case you want to tweet about this event, you're very welcome to tweet about this event and the hashtag is behind me it's uh, LSE Green Finance so if you uh, pick up something interesting that our speakers uh, say tonight uh, do reach to your Twitter account on LSE Green Finance and let the world know Um, you should also know that uh, this evening's uh, event is being recorded so we will hopefully be able to uh, to podcast it and you can sort of rewind it and, and, and sort of uh, check it again at your leisure later on. Um, the format is that we have uh, three speakers tonight whom I will introduce uh, in, in a minute. Uh, if you remember the program, originally we advertised for four speakers. Unfortunately, one of them, Ben Caldicott, cannot be with us, but I think it's a uh, Quality over quantity, I would say, and we have a very strong panel here tonight. But before, again, before I introduce them, let me say something about sustainability at the LSC. Um, We're actually quite proud at the school of our sustainability achievements, Uh, the the way we sort of address sustainability issues in everyday practice, the way we go about our business in the school, Um, and we have. Uh, been very successful in improving the way we go about our business in the school. We, we have sort of, for five consecutive years, won an award, a first-class award uh, uh, in the People and Planet Green League, um, so the school is very proud of that. Within that, make me a little plug for the Grantham Research Institute, we were last year, I think it was, the, the, the greenest uh, um, institute or department in the whole of the school, um, we're very proud of that as well. You will say, if you have environment in your name, uh, you don't have a choice. But I, I tell you, it was actually uh, it was quite a steep competition, and it was quite a lot of uh, hoops you have to jump through to uh, to become the greenest institute at LSE, Which again, so tells you something about how seriously these things are taken at the school. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Um, so if you pick up things. Uh, issues that we can improve uh, as you as sort of go about your student life here at LSE, do let people know because we we can get even better at these things. But that's sort of enough in terms of uh, general introductions. High time now that I introduce you to our speakers. Uh, to my left uh, is Nick Robbins, who many of you will probably remember as the head of the Climate Change Center of Excellence at HSBC for many, many years. Uh, Nick now has new responsibilities uh, and he will tell us a little bit about those later on. He is co-director of an inquiry by the UN Environment Programme, an inquiry into the design of sustainable financial systems. To my right is uh, Angie Richwell, who is Director General for Finance and Corporate Services at the Department of Energy and Climate Change, so she can tell us a little bit about uh, how sustainable finance works or is supposed to work in, in the UK. Uh, she's also the managing director of her own company, and before that, she worked uh, for many years at the Bristol City Council. Last but not least, we have Michael Minelli, um, who is a, a professor at the Gresham, Gresham College here in London. He's also the chairman of said Yen. I never quite figured out how one pronounces that. I hope, hope that comes close. Um, it's a commercial think tank on finance issues, uh, which, which Michael co-founded 20 years ago. So this is uh, our panel. The format... Um, uh, of tonight is that this is a slide-free zone, PowerPoint-free zone, Um, so uh, each of our speakers gets 10 minutes or so of introductory remarks, and I suggest we go through those uh, right at the beginning uh, in quick succession, and then we open it up for another sort of 40 minutes, 45 minutes, uh, depending on how uh, strictly, our, our speakers stick to the 10 minutes. Uh, for another 45 minutes or so of, of Q&A, and please, this is meant to be a uh, you know an interactive session. This is meant to be for you to ask questions, difficult questions, and many questions. So think about it as you listen to the opening presentations. Um, we start left to right from my point of view, right to left from your point of view. So Nick, why don't you kick off and tell us something about uh, your inquiry at the moment?
1: Thanks very much, Sam, and thanks very much to the uh, LSE to for inviting me back. I did my uh, my master's here in the last century, and it feels a long, long time ago. It's great, it's great to be back here. I'd like to touch on sort of five things in my, in my ten minutes. A little bit about the inquiry, why it's been set up, uh, and why we should be thinking about the rules of the game which govern the $300 trillion of assets in the global financial system. Um, some of the rationale for financial policymakers for thinking about finance. I think we'll hear about why sort of climate change policy are thinking about finance. Um, what are we finding globally in terms of our inquiry in, in places like Bangladesh, Brazil, uh, China, South Africa, and, and indeed here in the U.K.? Uh, what are some of the emerging themes? And then head into next year and thinking about what's some of the, sort of the, big, the big themes for next year, which, as we know, is a, is a major uh, sustainability uh, year for policy. Uh, so the inquiry was set up by, by UNEP, uh, and our aim is to identify policy options which will enable the financial system to be more effective in mobilizing uh, capital and finance for a green and inclusive uh, economy. You might ask why uh, UNEP. UNEP is an environmental program. Uh, we felt there was in a sense a gap in the market that after the crisis there was increasing interest in uh, how financial systems can be managed for the the public good Uh, and one of the missing dimensions was environmental sustainability Uh, so the inquiry was launched at Davos in January Uh, we have an international advisory panel of uh, former regulators like Adair Turner from the UK central bank governors, heads of pension funds and bankers and so on and so forth Uh, our aim is to uh, produce our policy conclusions at the end of next year, um, and we're we're drawing very much on country experience, what is actually uh, going on around the world, Uh, and our focus is really not so much on public finance, finance coming out of the public budget or development banks and so on, but really the rules of the game that guide and govern uh, private uh, capital, so banking regulation, insurance regulation, standards, norms, uh, principles, and how those can be better aligned with uh, sustainability. So as we were talking to both financial practitioners and also financial policymakers and regulators, um, why should you be doing this? Because generally speaking, um, when we've been thinking about financing uh, sustainability, we generally think about have good climate change policy or good environmental policy, pricing carbon, uh, good strong regulations to deal with externalities, or you have public money through great things such as the Green Investment Bank. Why would you want to think about financial policy and regulation? So there, there seem to be sort of five reasons which seem to be coming up. One is that financial markets themselves have a number of uh, market failures, uh, which actually make it more, more, more difficult to raise capital, particularly for long-term issues around sustainability. As, as Mark Carney said recently, we have a tragedy of horizon in particular around short-termism. So that's the first one. Secondly, that we know that uh, we, uh, we have a whole new category of, of environmental risks, whether those are local risks, uh, as people in Peru are finding about the financing of mining projects. Or global risks such as climate change, which we know at the moment that the financial system is not particularly good uh, at, at, at managing. Um, and one of the thoughts that are certainly talking to some policymakers is that um, financing projects which create environmental damage, these are externalities. And those externalities essentially are creating uh, systemic risks. So just as we're now thinking about managing the systemic risks of two big-to-fail banks, we might also want to manage the systemic risks caused by financing polluting projects. Uh, The third uh, reason is actually that there may well be barriers in the market, largely because markets may may well be uncompetitive and have other other barriers. Barriers to the innovation we need for uh, a green financial system. There needs lots of innovation for a green financial system, and actually, you might need some policy uh, intervention to remove those barriers. Finally, we want to see uh, policy uh, coherence. Obviously, that's that's the the mantra of all good government, but we know that financial policy uh, and environmental and sustainable policy is not always fully aligned. And we've seen quite a lot of that, or at least quite a lot of concerns about that after the crisis, about whether rules uh, designed to strengthen banks or strengthen insurance companies are well aligned with mobilizing capital uh, for long-term infrastructure in particular. So a number of reasons why you should be looking at that. What have we been uh, finding? Well, a lot of action has already been taken, particularly in the disclosure area. Uh, You have regulations such as the UK to require companies to disclose about their greenhouse gas emissions. You have the stock exchange regulators in the US. Uh, issuing guidance around that. Uh, Still, obviously, not uh, fully adequate uh, disclosure uh, by corporates and assets uh, to their investors, to the market. Uh, And an interesting side, which seems to be emerging, is much more interest in, actually, what financial institutions themselves should be disclosing. So not just corporates to their shareholders, but investors, institutional investors to people like you and me, who may well own mutual funds and have pensions and so on. The second is insurance, uh, and this is where I think the, the UK indeed is, is, is taking a lead the, the, the Prudential Regulatory Authority which is now part of the uh, Bank of England has launched a consultation to really to look at what does climate change mean for its regulatory duties to uh, ensure that we have uh, safe and sound insurance companies. A very interesting question and going about it in a very very thorough way um, but that could lead to some very interesting qu- results vis-a-vis uh, the time horizon uh, question. In terms of investment, in South Africa, really one of the the leaders in in sustainable finance, uh, pensions regulation has been changed to make clear to pension trustees that actually you can take account of sustainability factors in the way that you're managing money. Uh, And the whole question of fiduciary duty, which has long long been a a bugbear uh, for many investors. And finally, an area where we haven't seen direct action, but is getting a lot of interest, is the question around monetary policy uh, and what is coming to be called green quantitative easing, particularly in the case of the European Central Bank, uh, where they're going to be buying about a trillion dollars of, of European bank assets and structuring them asset-backed securities and cover bonds. The question is, what role does uh, sustainability play in the design of those, those securities, and how could that process be used to help um, kick-start uh, a green, securitized bond market in particular? So those are some of the things we're picking up. Uh, some of the themes, I think, uh, as you might have guessed. One of the themes is actually, what is the role of the central bank uh, in a sustainable economy? We think about many institutions when we think about sustainability and climate change. We think about places such as the Department of Energy and Climate Change. But the central bank, we haven't thought of as an institution. I think there's some interesting, uh, interesting questions about where does sustainability f- fit. Uh, from one central bank we, we've spoken to, speaking in a very, very matter-of-fact way, he was saying sustainability is a positive asset for financial monetary stability. Very interesting. Second is we need new mechanisms to overcome this tragedy of horizon and actually to think about what could uh, future environmental conditions mean for assets uh, today, asset values today. This is some of the work I was doing at HSBC where we were trying to uh, value the implications of the move to a low-carbon economy for uh, fossil fuel assets. Uh, It's been called environmental stress test, and I think you'll be hearing a lot about that in the the next uh, year. Third theme is is this question of responsibility. It's come up a lot in the institutional investor debate, but I think when we've been looking at other parts of the the economy, we have been thinking about extending responsibilities, so um, producers of packaging or or white goods and so on, extending their responsibilities for the final impact of their products. I think similar thinking is now being applied uh, to the financial uh, sector. Market innovation—the big area of interest—and and, is getting a lot of um, uh, market uh, dynamism behind it—is the, the theme of green bonds. Thirty billion already raised uh, this year globally; uh, ten billion last year, and a lot of interest now in terms of what are the standards and what are the market uh, reforms. Are needed to scale up that, particularly so that developing countries can have access to some of this green bond capital that is being uh, being being um, being raised. Going into next year, as many of you know, at the end of the year, we have the conclusion of a a new agreement uh, on climate change. Two months before, in September, we will have uh, the launch of a new set of sustainable development goals. Underpinning both is the need for financial systems uh, that actually can listen and hear the signals uh, that policymakers will be be, be sending. So I think one of the things, again, you'll be hearing uh, a lot more of next year will be how we align financial policy with climate and sustainability goals. And if I can make a plea, in 2009 when we had the Copenhagen Climate Summit, most policymakers in 2009 were thinking about the survival of the global economic system. This was the the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis and they were launching fiscal stimulus programs, many of which had green uh, dimensions. Next year, if we look at the forecast, most policymakers will be thinking about how we actually get out of economic stagnation, how we raise Income levels and so on. And we have really to think about how that can be linked with the climate and sustainability agenda if we're going to make uh, progress. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Nick. You sort of packed a hell of a lot into your 10 minutes. And uh, the bad news is <laughs> you did 12. I, I don't monitor you well enough. I should work in the financial sector. Um, as I said, hang on to your questions because we're going to straight. Uh, to the next presentation and then we have a a, a big Q&A right at the end of it all so uh, Angie do you want to go next and tell us something about sustainable finance in the UK or in DEC
2: okay what I wanted to talk about very briefly was um, some of the past behaviours which have um, got us to the position we're in how we can transition to low carbon technologies in a way that promotes growth and prosperity Um, some of the financial levers that we're using to do that at both the market level and at the individual consumer level, and I just want to touch a little bit on affordability. Um, So if we look back um, we know that since the industrial revolution um, we have benefited our economies through um, significant energy supplies, but most of those supplies have been dominated by fossil fuels because they were cheap, because they are easily available. Um, The fossil fuels even today still account for some 85% of the energy consumption globally, Um, but we also know they're the most significant source of greenhouse gas emissions, and these emissions come at a significant um, social cost, particularly around global warming. Um, What we do know, as as you know very well, is that this is reducing our crop production, it's causing extreme weather events, and eventually there will be rising sea levels. All of those have social and economic impacts which need to be addressed. Um, And we're only just beginning to understand really what those impacts are. Um, and what this tells us is while energy consumption has not historically factored into um, the way that we drive things forward, it is really important that not only do we think about um, our economy in terms of the cost of energy, but we also think about our economy in terms of reducing the consumption of energy. What we need to do now is to make sure that not only do we change our behaviours um, That we also make sure that we change our economies. Otherwise, um, we won't continue the level of prosperity and growth that we've had in the past. So, what we need to do is to bring forward investment in clean energy infrastructure and new technologies. What we need to do also is to reduce our carbon emissions. And this is really important because it not only ensures that we have security of supply by having a range of different suppliers and suppliers for our energy, but also that it it maximises energy efficiency and therefore reduces demand. Um, And this is important because the technologies of themselves may not be cheap, Um, But the counterfactual of adaptation and the impacts of climate change is also not cheap, as I said, both in terms of monetary and in social impact terms. Um, But not only do we have a moral and an economic reason for doing this, we also have a legal duty for um, impacting on climate change and bringing forward these new technologies. The Climate Change Act introduced in 2008 commits us to reducing our emissions by at least 34% in 2020 and by 80% in 2050. That's a significant change and to do that, that's going to require significant investment. At the moment, the energy sector currently has the largest pipeline of infrastructure investment projects in the UK. Um, they account for more than transport, communications, and water put together. And we estimate that we're going to need an investment of at least £100 billion of private sector money um, to make sure that the electricity infrastructure alone um, by 2020 is fit for purpose. And what we're trying to do is to create the right environment um, and the right conditions to bring that investment forward. And we need to make sure that that investment is smart and it is affordable. So what we need in the market is to create an industry that can prosper in the longer term and where investors can achieve a fair rate of return. But we also need, as was said previously, transparent long-term and clear policy framework that gives investors the confidence they need to invest in the future. We're committed to delivering this, um, and we need to make sure that we do that in a global market. And what we're determined to do is to build up a successful track record in the UK so that the sector um, is confident that it can thrive and even invest in our future. And we've already achieved a lot. Um, Since 2010, we've mobilised over $45 in low-carbon energy infrastructure, This is investment which is essential to keep the lights on and emissions down and also it's really important for saving consumers money on their energy bills. It's also important because this will support up to 250,000 jobs in the low carbon energy generation sector by 2020 and again jobs are important for, for creating wealth and prosperity. And in 2013 alone we attracted nearly £8 billion of investment across a range of renewable technologies and that was a record year for us. But what are the financial levers that we're using to create this environment? As I said, we've put in place a credible, stable and long term measures to provide consistent signals to the market. So that will increase their certainty and remove a degree of risk from the sector. Our Electricity Market Reform Programme is specifically designed to bring forward that massive investment, Um, and it offers a long-term, stable regulatory framework that provides a fair rate of return on capital. And there are two key tools to this, two key financial levers, um, which are the contracts for difference and the capacity market. Now the contracts for difference, um, these are the key to unlocking the long-term investment in renewable electricity by offering price certainty. We've already announced the first contracts in April 2014 and the first allocation will be opened in October um, with new contracts awarded in 2015 and we've already attracted significant investment. This is about bringing forward new technologies, which means that we have a choice of supplies, so different types of technology providing electricity, and more important, a a wide choice of suppliers. So we're not reliant on any one provider or any one technology. The second strand is the capacity market, and this is about encouraging investment to ensure that we have the capacity to meet demand in the future. Again, the first auctions for that are due to start take place next month, and they will come on stream for delivery in 2018 and 2019. So electricity market reform is unlocking investment now, and we've already awarded in April 2014 £12 billion of investment <coughs> contracts to eight renewable projects supporting 8,500 jobs, the heads of terms have been agreed and the state aid approvals received for the investment in Hinkley Point C, and new nuclear contract for difference. And we have two bidders who are undertaking front-end engineering design studies and preparatory work for allocating two carbon capture and storage contracts for difference in the near future. All of this is supported by £7.6 billion on the Levy Control Framework, which gives visibility to the budget over the, till the end of the decade. This sends very clear messages to the industry of our commitment, which will enable us to deploy and to meet our renewable targets and to deliver new nuclear and carbon capture and storage commitments. There's strong confidence in the electricity market reform and the low-carbon investment as a result of these um, levers that we've put in place. We also have a number of levers at the very local level. So we're providing financial instruments which help individuals. We've developed the Pay As You Save Scheme, which, is in- which encourages energy efficiency at the consumer level where consumers can have um, energy efficiency in their homes and pay for that as they accumulate savings on their um, energy bills. We also have the Home Improvement Fund, which works in a similar way. And also we have the investment in smart meters, which is designed to change behaviours at the point of consuming the electricity so that consumers can see what they're absorbing and change their behaviours accordingly. Smart meters will be rolled out to every household in the UK over the next few years. And most importantly, we're investing in small to medium enterprises to make sure the prosperity is equally shared. So how do we make this sustainable in the long term? Well, this isn't clear. Um, There's a huge debate at the moment between the long-term economic development of developing a clean economy... Um, And the Stern Review gives us some very clear messages. Without concerted action to reduce emissions, climate change could reduce the GDP by up to 20% per annum. Um, While the worst of these effects could be avoided by just spending just about 1% of our global GDP, so there is a huge economic compulsion to make these investments. This tells us we can afford to tackle climate change to introduce low-carbon infrastructure investments with multiple economic benefits that can pay for themselves with lower operating costs. Climate stability, resource security and environmental quality are the defining elements of a sustainable economy. A growing number of successful businesses, cities and countries are now demonstrating that it's impossible to improve their economic performance with lower climate risk at the same time. They are creating jobs and expanding profits and building dynamic cities. In addition to the extent that energy and climate change policies are maintaining or lowering the cost of energy services to the economy, they are boosting growth in the UK. Cost-effective energy efficiency means that goods and services can be produced using less energy reducing the costs of inputs and increasing outputs and profitability. And we can see the same happen at the domestic level too. So it's therefore really important moving forward that while we generate this investment, we utilise that not only to give us access to clean and secure um, energy in the future, but we also use it to drive the behavioural change which is necessary to reduce the costs to businesses, to the UK and to individual consumers.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Angie. I hope you realise how our speakers talk much more about regulation and incentives than they talk about finance, so I'm sure we will come back to that. Um, but before that, let's hear from Michael Minelli, who promised us to, be, to say a few etchy controversial things. Go for it.
3: Uh, who knows? Uh, well, f- it's a delight to be here, and I just uh, wanted to spend my ten minutes on, uh, firstly, uh, long finance, which I, I think does pick up a couple of themes that were raised, uh, how finance is tackling sustainability or not, uh, what might be a recommended model, and finally, uh, what sorts of things might we explore, uh, perhaps tonight even. Um, firstly, to try and get the audience on side, I, I too am a fellow LSE alum. I did my doctorate here in statistics uh, several years ago and in fact was a visiting professor here in the Department of Information Systems for five years. Um, but despite the academic leanings, the truth is I work mostly in the city. About 90% of my time is spent on financial matters, funding things, uh, IPOing companies, etc. So I'm, I'm kind of at the cutting edge of actually doing the stuff. Uh, I'm not a banker uh, or anything like that. I'm just a guy who likes uh, to see where tech and finance meet and create new businesses. And we've had a a few successes and a few failures. Um, But there was a point in my life when I was responsible for the commercialization of 40% of UK R&D when I was a grade three in the Ministry of Defense uh, for a number of years. So I've been across the uh, government-private sector divide, across the finance-tech divide, and across the academic-and-everything-else divide. And so I'll try and share that with you. Right. Well, what is long finance? Long finance is a movement of about 30,000 people in the city. uh, And these are people who, in 2005, responded to a question, when would we know our financial system is working? Now, we were really overtaken by events only a few years later as well. We've been exploring a whole host of things, um, and quite a few of them on environmental, social, and governance issues. We created something called the London Accord, which is an agreement signed by 65 institutions to share their investment research, and there are about 450 reports up there. None of these reports are read in Whitehall, but they are read around the rest of the world. Uh, What we find is that uh, the financial services community does care. Uh, The financial services community lays out extremely clearly and openly what it would like to to see done, Uh, and we feel in many ways that our problem is that we are a machine. Uh, and a bunch of mechanics who, who keep the machine running, um, and society doesn't understand that it's their problem they're uh, pushing too hard on the accelerator for GDP growth or something else. We're just there to make the machine work. At the core of the machine, though, is money. Uh, and I must say, over the last uh, nine years, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that economists, and I count myself amongst that mob, uh, really have no theory of value, uh, a very poor theory of price. We can't define price, but virtually no theory whatsoever about money. Uh, What is money? Well, I I could give you an entire hour or two on it, but I'll jump to the definition. Money is a technology that communities use to exchange debts. Uh, I'll I'll repeat that. Money is a technology that communities use to exchange debts. Why is that important? Well, the dominant form of money is uh, fiat currency, which is used in semi-coercive communities like nation states you know, ring up HMRC uh, tomorrow morning and tell them you're not feeling British and you'll call them when you feel like paying your taxes and you'll see the semi-coercive nature of the state pretty rapidly Um, and what we're seeing there is that under this type of definition uh, money is a collective tool of the imagination it's whatever we want it to be Money is one of the great decision-making tools that we primates have evolved. This is the way that we can make decisions across time and space. So, so if we want to make the world a better place, we have to make money work because that is the tool by which we make decisions. <laughs> so that leads me on to how, how is finance tackling sustainability, uh, tonight's question. And the answer is, it's not. It's not finance's job. <laughs> Finance is a machine. You put the numbers in at one end, and uh, we should make the right sort of decisions. We're not making those decisions, I hasten to add, and I want to come back to that. Many years ago, I helped create the World Conservation Monitoring Center. And therefore, I have a lot of uh, green leanings. This was 35 years ago. And I have a lot of green friends. And they keep coming to me. And they keep saying, the city's making the wrong decisions. I say, no, the city's making absolutely brilliant decisions. It's a sausage machine. You make the numbers add up differently at the front end, and they'll make different decisions at the back end. So um, on that kind of thing, and it's not about shifting blame, because uh, I think a lot of people in the city would like to see the machine change and are trying to do it. How could we change those front end numbers? Well, um, we have to make money work. So what might the recommended model be? I think the recommended model is fairly obvious, and uh, you know, both Nick and Angie uh, touched on it. We need to internalize the externalities. Um, that, that's, that's an obvious thing, uh, and we can point to many of those externalities. I would add to that, uh, funnily enough, having done a fair amount of work on biodiversity, that we also need set-aside We had a lovely event last week with uh, Edward Wilson, the famous biologist, creator of sociobiology at St. Paul's, and he's recommending, and I have great sympathy with, perhaps setting aside half the planet on the basis that we get the externalities functioning over here, but let's not be completely uh, reckless and let's leave half the planet alone as well, because if that doesn't work, we better have some place we can move into. Um, I think uh, there are other areas. For example, a lot of people focus on integrated reporting. I'm not a fan of integrated reporting. To me, it's a PR stunt. Um, All you wind up with is multiple currencies. Uh, But it might be a starting point. I I accept that. But I would like to see the the internalization uh, of things as, as the area that we most focus upon. Um, Let's apply this to something like alternative energy. Um, There are quite a few problems in that space. Uh, Firstly, there's the subsidies that underpin fossil fuel and the way in which taxes are there. So when you say that people in the city are making the wrong decisions, they're not. Look at the subsidies for fossil fuels. Uh, secondly, um, governments tend to focus on things like carbon capture and storage, which leads to lovely ribbon-cutting plants and, and, and looks good for ministers. But the truth is it's actually instantiating fossil fuels, so that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, on the other hand, one of the great advantages of fossil fuels is, of course, that they come with embedded energy. Uh, it's an embedded energy product, uh, and, and it's therefore got its own storage. Uh, and the problem with most of the alternative energy technologies is that they have no storage, and they're highly variable. So why don't we see a lot more emphasis on, ge- on genuine storage? So those are the sorts of market failures that we in the city would like to see corrected just in that area. What might we explore? Well, it's very, very clear that the sausage machine is, uh, as Angie says, and, and I would say it's 8 to 1 or 9 to 1, Betting on fossil fuels, whether we like it or not. So, we've made very little progress in changing the decisions that the machine turns out. Uh, and I think that's kind of sad, uh, and I would like to see it change. But we made a submission to Copenhagen uh, in 2009, and I still think that submission is valid. What we pointed out is that the reason that investors favor fossil fuels is that governments don't follow through on their policies. Um, I I heartily commend, by the way, the policies you're proposing on CFDs and all, but the history of investment in alternative energy and other areas to do with green has been that the best fund you could have possibly set up over the last 20 years was the one that was contrarian, that did exactly the opposite of what the government proposed. So whether it's first-wave biofuels, second-wave biofuels, uh, ETS in 2005, we, the governments of Europe, April 2005, do solemnly swear to keep the price of carbon above €25 a tonne. Anybody remember that one? (laughs) Um, So the best fund you could have had was the opposite. And 20 years uh, plus later, we are still seeing investment running at 8 and 9 to 1 into fossil fuels. Now, that's a bit depressing. So what we would like to see are more proposals. And CFDs, I do think, fall into that camp, to be honest, and the capacity market. But uh, our biggest proposal was a policy performance bond. So it would be a bond issued by a government, not a green bond. Nick's talking about something else. These would be bonds that the government can use for roads and schools and paying policemen. We don't really care. Um, But if they fail to deliver on their policies, the bond would pay more interest. So, for example, tie it to the percentage of renewables in the economy. So come 2020... If we have 20% renewables, that's lovely. The bond pays nothing except capital back. But if it's languishing at 14 or 15%, it pays 5 or 6%. And you can keep cranking that up. You could do the same on the price of fuel at the pump. You could do the same on electricity prices, et cetera. Um, but bonds that force governments to basically pay when they break their policies are to us one big thing that we could talk about. Anyway, I'll just close uh, perhaps on, you know, are we optimistic or pessimistic? Um, uh, There's a phrase that I've been unable to source, uh, which I absolutely adore, which is, you know, be optimistic, pessimism is for better times. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm quite quite optimistic, actually. Maybe it's just this evening. I think that ultimately, uh, globalization is proceeding apace. Uh, We're automating our decisions through technology. We have a huge opportunity, perhaps, to move to some sort of form of uh, abundant economics, which might just squeeze 10 billion people onto the planet in 2050. I don't know. I have to be optimistic about that. But whatever it is, it will take a lot of energy. Uh, We are using a lot of energy to, to be global. We're using a lot of energy Uh, to make those smart decisions uh, using computers. So I would would certainly like us to arrive at a planet that we can all live on, and I think the only way that we're going to achieve that is by making money work. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Michael. I think you lived up to your promise. Um, And I noticed Nick was writing, taking notes uh, very furiously <laughs> and she and was looking rather concerned when the performance bond was mentioned. So, in principle, it's your turn now, but let me sort of turn to those two and give them a chance to get a few things off their chest. Uh, Nick, it's not finance's job uh, to do these things. You talked to us about the role of central banks and the increased interest of central banks, which seems to be Absolutely, the other message
1: no it 's very interesting. I think we need to work at both ends of the uh, of the of the system in a sense what, certainly the, the signals that we are sending let 's say for the real economy in terms of energy prices, regulation, uh, and so on, but also within the financial system itself that 's the reason I, I moved on from HSBC in a sense realizing that um, even if we had these great uh, signals and we had the proper price of carbon which we hope we're going to get then there's still flaws and behavioural problems and so on in financial markets which particularly mean that those signals are not going to be listened to effectively we have questions about uh, allocations of responsibility, we have uh, myopia where people are are more short term than they need to be if they were going to be rational agents and so on and so on so so my sense is these two agendas are complementary and we need to work, work in both the the, sort of the the supply of capital, the rules around the supply of capital, but clearly around the signals uh, that are set by agencies such as DEC in terms of the real economy uh, pricing.
0: Okay, Angie, then, what, what do you think would be your relationship with George Osborne if uh, yields on bonds depend on, on DEC's performance?
2: Well, I would say actually it needs to depend on the public and industry's performance, and we need to create the environment where. Um, The public and industry can change their behaviours. I think my career would be very short if I signed (laughs) us up to um, um, delivering exactly what has been suggested. But we do need to create the environment, and there does need to be not just the carrot, but there also needs to be the stick. So I think for me it's about getting the right balance in there, which... um, regulates where we need to regulate but also creates incentives as well to get the right sorts of behaviours
0: I think it was a diplomatic way of saying I don't like the idea but uh, (laughs) I do, I think there's a lot of intriguing uh, ideas in that but uh, let's open it up we still have, as I said, we have about 40 minutes at least of of Q&A the usual sort of rules Uh, first, wait for the microphone second, please introduce yourself Third, please keep your questions short. Okay, on those instructions, uh, there's a hand up there in the middle.
4: Hello, Uh, my name is Malte Maas. I'm here a master's student at LSE in environment and development. And also, I'm engaged in the um, divestment campaign from LSE. And that's my question, what do you think about divestment if it's like a a good thing, a solution for institutions like universities, since uh, you just said the LSE is so proud of being sustainable, but still investing loads and loads of money in fossil fuel industry. So I just would like to know your opinion about that.
0: Okay. For those of you who don't know what the divestment campaign is, it's a campaign to get universities or those with big endowments, which LSC probably isn't one, but we have some endowments, to get those universities not to invest in fossil fuels. Um, Who wants to go first? Michael?
3: Um, It goes back to the sausage machine idea. Um, If your goal is to make investment in fossil fuels look less attractive, that is, uh, on the face of it, an interesting way to do it. Um, I think, though, there are some differences. I mean, the traditional campaigns that I participated in in the 70s were all to do with apartheid, for example. So we, we were disinvesting in apartheid and blah, blah, blah. I think the problem you have, though, if you disinvest in attractive areas, actually attractive uh, places, all you're actually doing is creating more profit for other people. So I think ideally what you want to do is to work with people uh, to move their, their portfolios a- out, of, out of those areas over a longer period of time. I think abrupt investment... Uh, isn't going to achieve much on its own. However, as a political statement amongst universities, it's, it's perfectly okay. Um, You've probably got a slightly different view. Okay,
0: go
1: for it. Next yeah, I mean I, I mean, I think it's, it's the, the divestment campaign led by Bill McKibben 350.org. I think is one of the biggest uh, factors rolling across uh, North Atlantic. Uh, markets. I think the thing is, why are you doing divestment? And I think it's, there are different different rationales. One is it's a political statement to actually take away the legitimacy of fossil fuel companies, which I think is where most of the campaigns start, and that's, that's fine if, if, it's, if it's your money or, or you have that influence over those particular institutions. The second, actually, is the argument is that you're protecting assets, um, there have been many, many good reasons for getting out of uh, coal from an economic and financial point of view, uh, and I think particularly if you look at the way that the Chinese economy is going and the peaking, the early peaking of coal demand, there there could be very, very rational economic reasons for at different stages. Um, and the third, I think, is probably the most important, is as is, is part of the, along with the divestment, is actually to decapitalize. and that's actually ultimately what we're thinking to do. Is we want to take capital out of uh, high-polluting assets, who actually want to take the capex away from particularly new uh, coal, tar sands, and and, and fossil fuel assets, which can't stay within the budget. And and that is a a much longer agenda than simply selling shares. But I think there are a number of different reasons for why you should be very, very concerned about holding fossil fuel stocks for for different characters in the financial system.
0: Okay, so it's a bad investment as well as a a sort of a, a moral statement. Does DEC have any views on these things? Should we ask BIS?
2: Well, I think I can only give my personal view rather than... Please do. ...DEC or BIS. I I think you just need to be very clear in terms of anything that you're doing about what you are trying to achieve and to map the best way of achieving it. For me, in terms of tackling some of the agenda with fossil fuels, I think it's much more about um, reducing demand um, rather than necessarily the investment in a particular industries. So I would say, in terms of this approach, I would say you need to map out exactly what you're trying to achieve and what messages you are trying to send, um, either political or otherwise, and then make sure you get the best route map for achieving that.
0: Let me turn it around. Um, how many of you, show of hands, think we should LSC should divest out of fossil fuels? Okay, I need the, the ones who think we should not. It's hard to say. Okay, there's a fair few who don't know, but there's sort of hardly any who think we should stay in those uh, fields. That's very interesting, actually. I didn't quite expect that, but uh, very, very interesting to see that. Um, more shows of hands, this time to ask questions. Um, let's start further back, the lady at, uh, to the left. Yes.
5: Thank you. I'm Siti. I'm from development management uh, course. Actually, I would like to ask, uh, how do you find the conditionalities that you've been put to the recipient countries on how to tackle the sustainability in their countries when there is less successful stories of foreign aid or foreign investment that could lead to sustainable growth, especially in sub-Saharan Africa?
0: Right, so a question about conditionality on sustainable that probably goes into your direction mostly yeah I mean I think what is is
1: interesting certainly the work we're doing looking at uh, a lot of developing and emerging economies is why they are for their own rationale putting in place conditionality on their own banks Um, so uh, Peru introducing new requirements for all banks to have uh, proper due diligence practices to avoid conflict yeah? China introducing green credit guidelines to steer the allocation of banking credits for domestic banks towards uh, low, low carbon, more resource efficient uh, Bangladesh, South Africa, Brazil and so on so so I think what we're moving is, is, is an issue where this is not so much about a, a traditional north-south conditionality debate, it's actually what are the rationales Within countries for aligning your financial policy and regulation with sustainability. And actually, that's happening much more in developing countries than in the OECD.
0: Any other thoughts on that? Everybody happy? The next question was just a couple of hours before. Oh.
1: I didn't quite understand which fund you were talking about. This is a question
0: about red. Um, Red. Red reduction of the red plus in Guyana.
1: Okay. Not my specialist subject, sorry.
0: Does anybody know (laughs) deforestation? No. Sorry, we'll have to pass on this one. Well, the next question was just... Well, a- well actually,
3: I could, I could merely point out that we made a similar proposal on RED that there ought to be forestry bonds of the, same, of the same type, which would be, frankly, easily observable from space. You would say, well, I've achieved reforestation rates, and I do or don't pay. And again, not dictating to governments what their specific policy should be to achieve that, leaving, mm-hmm. leaving that up to them to solve it locally on the ground.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, please. So, my name's David Wood. I'm Chair of London Futurist. I want to come back to the suggestion that uh, Michael made that the key thing is to internalise the externalities and if that's done, then finance as a whole will take uh, better decisions. But my question is, uh, this doesn't seem to be happening. It's been proposed for a long time and it seems to be that there are many reasons why this isn't happening. Do you agree with the more radical conclusion put forward recently by Naomi Klein in her book, this changes everything, that the vested interests behind neoliberalism and the big companies are just going to keep on digging in their heels and prevent any such tinkering and improvements that might alter the system?
0: Okay. Comments on Naomi Klein's book? Anybody? (laughs)
3: well it 's always easy to talk about a book you haven 't read so <laughs> i haven 't read it. I, I have read reviews, but I have not read it for sure but i 'll take your thesis as one about the, the neoliberal neoliberals basically being a block. Um, It's funny because Nick and I were chatting about that as we sat down. Where do we sit politically? And and I am very much of an old-style liberal school. Um, I'm for open competitive markets. I'm not a capitalist. uh, People find that a bit strange. Capitalism is a Marxist term. uh, um, I I don't believe that the ownership of capital is the primary thing. I do believe in open competition. Um, In terms of open competition, uh, I, I therefore want to see externalities internalized. And yes, there are clearly blocks to that. Um, but you know, quite a few of the blocks are just a lack of willpower, a lack of a decision to change. Quite a few of them are embedded in things like arcane tax structures. So when you, you know, if we can't make the ETS system work, uh, I'd re- rather we had a second go at trying to make it work, which we're probably going to be doing, I think, next year. There's lots of indications the spot price market might return. Um, why do I prefer that to taxation? Well, because if, you, if politicians can't issue a fixed number of permits decreasing each year. If they find that too complicated, what are they going to do with taxation? And any time you start looking at taxation, you see vested interests. And remember, if our fiat currency is tax script, when you give people tax breaks, those are effectively subsidies. They are one and the same thing. There's a unity to it. So I'd like to see a lot more simplicity. Um, uh, Frankly, if I had a hero uh, economist, it's a man who I think Sam might know, uh, Silvio Gazelle, uh, Silvio Gazelle, uh, Keynes once said of Silvio Gazelle, the world will have far more to learn from Gazelle than it will ever learn from Marx. Um, and yet he is widely overlooked. And he had a mantra of free land, free trade, free money, by which he meant specific things. Um, and his free land bit was that land should be held in common. You'll find most economists, as they get long in the tooth, move towards land value taxation as probably the primary form, an inherently sustainable. Uh, type of taxation, which in turn promotes further sustainability and efficient use of land and promotes set-asides, etc. Now there's your vested interest, uh, and it's not the large neoliberal corporations, it's us who don't like uh, transparent tax systems.
0: Any reactions?
1: Maybe. I mean, just two, two, two thoughts. I mean, I think within the sustainability and climate community, we talk a lot about um, uh, subsidies and perverse subsidies, particularly for fossil fuels, which obviously uh, need to be removed both in the industrialised world and developing countries. But I think what has, what has been interesting since the crisis is recognising just how subsidised the financial system is. Um, and only last Monday, Mark Carney, when he was wrapping up, I suppose, the last wave of post-crisis regulation, was, was making it very clear just how much the banking system is subsidised, uh, how much we, we have um, support uh, for, for bank accounts. Many of us who have savings products are subsidised through through ISIS, pension funds. We have fiscal subsidies as well. And very, very few of these subsidies are in any way whatsoever with sustainability. So that's, that's an issue perhaps which we should be uh, looking at. And in terms of cost and internalization, um, again, I think talking certainly to some economists and, and regulators, there's no real uh, reason theoretically why we shouldn't be internalizing costs within the financial system as well as uh, within uh, the, the real economy, let's say, within energy pricing. Um, and so if we take the notion of stress tests, for example, these are tests used by regulators, to see whether banks can survive unlikely but plausible scenarios so a 30% fall in the housing market. So why couldn't we start introducing stress tests, for, for example, carbon, where you do actually apply the real, in quotes, external cost of carbon, which is nearer to $100 a ton, and see what that does to bank uh, portfolios of, of a lending or to uh, pension, fund, uh, uh, pension fund portfolios and so on and so forth. So, so my sense is that we've been actually rather unimaginative when we've been thinking about internalizing costs, and certainly we need that to happen in a real economy, but from a risk perspective... Also, do that in the financial economy as well.
0: Right. Um, gosh, I have a choice all of a sudden. out um, there in the middle.
4: Uh, hello, um, I'm Prashant Fazay, I work for Nest Pensions. Um, earlier this year we did a, a number of interviews where we talked to people in the city, um, long funds, short funds, about uh, their attitudes towards um, carbon investment. Um, one of the things that we came across quite strongly was there's very little credibility that um, any kind of um, binding international agreement about carbon was Going to come anytime soon. So this idea of this kind of architecture of um, real, realistic carbon prices was well, not really believed, and there's no great surprise. I mean, ExxonMobil is one of the most highly capitalized companies in the world. Um, the sovereign wealth fund of Norway is the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. And that's all from fossil fuel um, costs uh, to revenues. So my question is really, um, what do people in the panel feel about um, different policies away from um, the current kind of architecture that, we'll, that you know, the government will only apply meaningful action if, if everybody else doesn't. Maybe some um, other options, I think, Mark, you were talking about much heavier taxation, but maybe taxation on, on fossil fuels at trade, trade ports as well. And I've got, if, if I may, a quick question for Angela as well. Um, if you look at other sectors, like the water sector, there's been very, very substantial uh, investment needs, for instance, meeting the urban wastewater directive and things like this. Um, the, the response there, from a policy point of view, has been to use the regulated asset base as a way of raising uh, f- capital quite cheaply. Why couldn't this be done in the energy sector as well for you know, um, issues like um, electricity storage? I mean, already effectively it's been done with the national grid. That's how that's funded. Why don't we do it for um, electricity storage and renewables as well?
0: Do you have a reaction to that?
2: Well, I think what I would say is we are trying to um, diversify to bring forward a range of technologies um, and what we are doing is trying to make sure that we've we got a good spread, um, so we are looking at a range of things like wind, like offshore, like um, um, turbines, and even potentially looking forward we'll be looking at potentially tidal. What we need to do is to make sure that we are bringing things closer to the market. So what we're def- trying to do is to create the environment where people invest um, rather than necessarily dictate which way things go. So we are trying to um, encourage the market to come forward rather than to set the parameters ourselves. Um, I, think what is, I Is that
3: strictly true given the scale of your nuclear energy? That doesn't sound to me either neutral, uh, it's a huge bit being bet on one technology, a technology with a zero learning curve over the last 60 years, and and yet you're technology neutral. I'm I'm confused.
2: Well, I mean, obviously we have to ultimately choose technologies.
3: Do you want to tell the audience the price that you've paid?
2: At the moment, I mean, we are
3: still in negotiations, so I'm not in a
0: position to do that. Well, it's £92 <laughs> per megawatt-hour, we all know it. Um, but there's sort of a... Um, technology neutrality is something that Danny Roderick told us at a seminar a couple of months back, which is it's absolutely fine to pick winners. In fact, it's the job of governments to pick winners. Where they make mistakes is that they, forgot, they forget to cut the losers, and you have to do that as well. Um, Can I have all those hands back there? uh, To the right, in the middle of the auditorium. My right, yes, over there. That's a bit further back. Sorry, I didn't... Yes, please. Your turn, yeah.
5: Hello, uh, my name is Sophie. Uh, I'm a student at SOAS. Um, I would like to ask, maybe uh, Angela in particular, um, about the... The Climate Change Act and these kind of goals, where you um, um, reduce the CO2, um, in many uh, cases, I don't know about this specific uh, uh, case, but, but um, in Denmark where I'm from, they many many uh, in, many of these calculations they don't put all the import of um, of hardware, you can say. So they will put up windmills and then they will save energy, but they don't calculate all the, like, all the resources for, for actually producing the wheelmill itself, which is in so many cases a pretty um, CO2 expensive uh, industry. I mean, um, so, so in the Climate Change Act, do you calculate every, like, every factor or, or do you um, do not calculate imports?
2: When we do our calculations, we, have a, we do look at modelling. We try and model end-to-end processes so that we make sure that we do um, include everything in as far as we can assess what those inputs are. So we are trying to make sure that we are modelling the full end-to-end life cost in terms of emissions <coughs> so that we can go from that baseline and show how they've reduced over time. So that is our aspiration.
1: Okay. I mean, I think what we're realising more and more is that there are sort of at least three different categories of emissions. There's geographical carbon, which is what most uh, international targets are set around, and there's embedded carbon in terms of trade, uh, and sadly, most of the improvements that many industrialised countries have made, including the UK, in terms of reducing geographical carbon, have been offset by importing carbon in goods and service from other countries, notably uh, China. And, fi- and finally, there's financial carbon, which is actually the carbon that is associated with our investments, which again Goes back to the investment question, which again, as a investor here in London, you can be investing a company listed on the New York Stock Exchange with emissions coming out of Mozambique, for example. So the, we need to be very careful about sort of monitoring, measuring, and actually targeting all three categories of, of carbon. It's
0: very good. Financial carbon was a new one on me. Um, let's stay in that corner. There's, uh, I think, the lady sort of in the middle. is yeah. a bit quicker, and then we go to the right. Yes, please.
6: Hi, I'm um, Charlotte West from Business in the Community. Um, I'm interested in Michael's thoughts in particular around, we spoke a bit about divestment, but actually how much do you think that a, I guess an opportunity-based approach to sustainability could tip the market? I mean, there's more and more businesses out there that are, I suppose, creating business opportunities from sustainability. So um, I guess like new like, technologies are a company in particular I'm aware of that take carbon and actually use it to create... Uh, New plastics, which are, I suppose, carbon neutral and actually negative. How much do you think that, I suppose, creating new business opportunities that address sustainability, that are actually commercially positive and profitable, will help us move forward? Whether you think we're kind of getting there, whether there's enough innovation yet, or whether there needs to be a lot more to be done. So. I guess it's kind of a yeah a positive way of looking at stability rather than just not investing in fossil-intensive businesses. If that makes sense,
3: Michael. Tough, 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 tough one to answer. It's more a kind of a gut feel. But I, 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 I point out, I think, two things. Uh, one is uh, really coming from an economics background. Learning curves are extremely powerful devices, and once something gets onto a learning curve, it's almost impossible to get it off for a very, very long time. Um, Moore's Law is obviously the one that's dominated uh, the last two generations Uh, but we've seen this in uh, solar uh, we've seen seen it in wind, we've seen it elsewhere Um, so learning curves are really quite cool and I think tidal for example is just starting to get onto that learning curve so I'm quite excited about it I think the second point I'd make is about just kind of raw physics. Uh, I don't think that using, I don't think it's going to be possible to really find uh, a use for the $7 billion in emissions, and it's a pretty horrific way to do it, which is to pump it up and then try and grab it back. So I, I'll kind of park that one if I might. And we're not in short supply on carbon anyway, so uh, it's there. And I think the third point you raised, though, which is interesting, of course, is you know, where does the innovation come from? Innovation is a nightmare for all large organizations. Large organizations don't innovate. Uh, It's not what they do. Uh, They can take sparks of innovation and do things with it, but they don't create it. Uh, Government doesn't innovate. I manage 40% of R&D. We created absolutely nothing. We found things. (laughs) We helped, but we did not innovate. Innovation is a very um, ill-understood area. But it's terrifying. You can't sit back as a large organization and say, well, heck, I don't know where it's going to come from. It'll just pop up one day. So we have panels, and we manage the process, and we model end-to-end, and we do a lot of crap. Um, It normally comes from left field. Um, Only five or six years ago, at sessions like this, we had people preaching that what we needed to do, what we needed to do was to license our IP freely to China so they could produce solar panels. (laughs) Remember that, don't you? This was the big debate. Well, what happened? The Chinese said, stuff you. Anyway, uh, went and developed their own solar panels as they were beating the pants off of us. Um, yes, they has a bit of government subsidy, but then given the, st- the structure of their state, everything in China is you know, is de facto subsidized. And we're actually looking at some interesting stuff there. So when we're looking at, uh, Nick's, I love Nick's three points there, but certainly the embedded carbon one, we're starting to see already plants in developing countries where they're just laying out solar panels and manufacturing. In fact, the question, I think, for the northern hemisphere is, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward physics. You know, It's really good at the equator, and it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. We're looking at solar parity, uh, arguably, in this country during daylight hours, I accept, Uh, but around 2021, 2023, it depends on who you chat to. Uh, Somebody told me the other day I was wrong, it was 2018, and he's your former minister. Um, So it doesn't matter. It's quite soon we're going to be seeing this this happening. This will transform the economics, uh, almost without us doing anything uh, necessarily innovative. So hence my focus on storage as kind of the one big market failure that is often ignored uh, in this type of debate.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I think storage is absolutely crucial once you start talking about solar in this country. I'm a big fan of it, but uh, yeah, it does get quite dark around Christmas. Um, there's a question, yeah, light at the fringe there, then we come to you in the front.
7: Hi, uh, I'm Stephen, I'm a student here um, I've also worked in the carbon markets, so I've witnessed um, many, many major investment banks <laughs> shut down their carbon trading desks. Just want to know what your interpretation of that is. Do, do you think it's something that needs to be addressed and addressed quickly, or does it actually signal a move away from short-termist,
1: you know, speculative modes of looking at investment risk and reward?
0: Closure of carbon markets, Nick.
1: Well, carbon markets are a totally artificial market and they rely on um, strong long-term signals from governments. <coughs> governments didn't provide the strong long-term signals. That the markets collapsed. I mean, it's, it's sad. Um, and they limp along. Um, and uh, China is introducing some. They're introducing many developing countries. We have, some, we have a carbon market here in Europe still, just about. Um, but it's not the ma- major driving force for technological developments, we thought. Um, so I think it's the big... It's one of the reasons maybe answering Prashant's point is actually, again, if you actually had invested, and many people did, on the basis of government policy coming through in 2008, 9, 10, um, you lost a lot of money. Uh, so that's why people are wary, quite understandably.
0: carbon market actually was a, was a bubble, like so many other bubbles and that does create the problem.
3: There's, have- a, there's a wider point to this, though, which um, I mean, Nick opened with, you know, these are artificial markets. Um, act- actually all markets are artificial. <laughs> uh, no, quite seriously, people go, well, I've got land. Well, you only have land because there's a land registry. You only have land because I can't uh, nip into your house while you're away with a shotgun and say, you know, bugger off. You know, the police will be there. Uh, they'll throw me out. I mean, all markets and property rights are artificial uh, at, at that level. So I, I just... I hasten to add, it's, it's up to us to decide what we want to restrict and, and, and implement it. And that was Nick's core point there, that the politicians didn't feel that we cared enough to restrict the emissions to keep the price up there, uh, basically to meet their own policies.
0: Okay, we have... Uh, here's a suggestion. We take three questions and then one final round of comments. We start in from and work our way back. How about that?
1: My name is Stephen Bienick from XR Trading. Um, This is a question more directed towards Angela, but I guess the entire panel would have ideas too. Does the recent sort of um, uh, politics of the cost of keeping your house warm cause a lot of problems when trying to encourage long-term investment in the British energy market?
0: Okay. Think about that while we move back to uh, Mr. Oh, there you are in the middle. Yes. Gentleman with the glasses in the middle.
3: My name is Manish, I'm a sustainability consultant with a commercial property consultancy. I think it's more for Nick. It's about the green bonds and it's attracting so much finance. Is there a body which is monitoring what it is doing and all those promises? And is it I mean is, is there a remit, is can you have a green bond invest internationally or is I mean is there somebody overseeing that investors' funds are safe and delivering as promised? Thanks.
0: Very good question. And the final one is right at the back to the to my left. Hi, my name is
7: Boon. I'm an alumni of the LSE. I'm currently starting up a company on um, that promotes clean web sector. So clean web is the intersection of the Internet uh, and web-based technologies and sustainability. So um, there are plenty of clean web companies that are sort of being built. So an example is Open Utility, which is promoting um, the matching of renewable energy generators and buyers, so essentially uh, eBay market for renewable energies. Um, And there are plenty of others that work in, say, uh, the collaborative consumption market, so Airbnb, for example, matching unused resources. Um, And, well, my question is how is the sort of financial technology changing um, allowing us to be more sustainable. So uh, in particular, the Bitcoin technology that is a, uh, a democratic way of sort of uh, moving finances and wealth, and which obviously is uh, independent of a central bank or a central government. Uh, I'm sort of really curious what the panel thinks and how the government is responding and how individual big corporations might respond in the really sort of long term.
0: Okay, this is working out very beautifully. We have uh, one question of energy efficiency for Angie, one about defining green and green bonds for Nick. And I know Michael was telling us about bitcoins while we were walking down here, so you can answer that one. Angie, you want to go first?
2: Yes, certainly, just to pick up. Um, we always talk about the trilemma that we're dealing with in DEC, which is about having clean energy, affordable energy and sustainable energy, as in that it's there when you need it. Um, Clearly underpinning that affordability is one of the key strands um, and we need to make sure in terms of addressing the other two strands that we also keep affordability in mind at all times Um, and one of the key strands to affordability is about managing down demand um, so that's about bringing forward technologies or um, infrastructure changes which enable people to reduce their demand and then make sure that the call on the electricity that they are using is reduced. So the, the issue about keeping the house warm, I think, is a fundamental driver to make sure that we do keep ourselves focused on the policies that we're delivering. Um, and affordability is one of the key um, areas of the trilemma, so that is very important to us.
1: Green and green bonds. Yeah, very, very good question. Um, we've had a sort of rapid market evolution, um, and what has happened is you've got a, a group of uh, investment banks with some of the big uh, development banks who've formed a body called the Green Bond Principles. Uh, but they're only setting s- essentially process principles that actually you say you're going to issue a, a green bond. You say you state what your, your characteristics are, uh, and then you actually report on those. Yeah. Now that maybe is okay at the beginning of the process, but actually as soon as you move beyond relatively simple things such as renewables into the biggest area, which is energy efficiency, whether that's buildings or industry or transport, then energy efficiency is always relative. So you are going to need standards. And uh, If you move into agriculture and forestry and red and so on, you have forest bonds, you're going to need standards. So there's a group called the Climate Bonds Initiative, which is a market-based uh, NGO, which is developing standards uh, for that. Uh, and that's uh, that's an area where I think uh, for consumer investor protection, I think, as you were suggesting, um, that there will need to be some, probably quite light touch, oversight, um, because there will be a a bad green bond. Uh, there will be people who raise money uh, citing a green bond or sustainability or planet or whatever, and it will be not what it says on the tin. And that could bring the whole market into dispute. So I think working on standards helps strengthen the market and also enables much more capital to be deployed because you don't need to do boutique and
3: assessment of each green bond. You have
1: a standard you can work against.
0: And finally, Michael.
3: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll touch on uh, Bitcoin and blockchains briefly, merely because uh, we're doing a tremendous amount of research and building in this space. But I, I think it's a wider point that you raise about r- really just kind of financial technology. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, the, the, the blockchain is is the half uh, that underlies Bitcoin of its technology, which is effectively uh, a series of open distributed transaction ledgers, um, the fact that there's a, then a coin layered on top of that is a slightly different uh, different angle to it. This uh, means, therefore, that we, we actually have two technologies therein. Uh, the first one, which is obviously getting in the press, <clears throat> is our ability to create whole hosts of cryptocurrencies. So many of the uh, 1950s and 60s debates, uh, Herod, uh, T. Odom and all that with um, Emergy, this was a proposal back in the 50s that units of energy should be the ultimate currency. We could try if we wished. I mean, there's a lot of things we could try. They don't actually accord with my definitions of money, but experimentation is the game. Uh, last count I had, there are 537 cryptocurrencies out there, so Bitcoin isn't the only one in town. You can create them uh, quite cheaply now, um, create your own currencies. Um, However, the blockchain, I think, is is far more interesting. So this allows us to have trusted third-party relationships we've never had before uh, and to do them cheaply and efficiently across the web. Um, I'm not 100% sure that there are too many green angles, but um, I, and I said upstairs I'm not too sure that there are any green or sustainability angles about these coins. Uh, but there is about fintech in general or financial technology, and that's that for the first time we can, using you know, the connectivity of these devices, the Internet of Things, we can build billing systems we never dreamed of. Now, I'm an accountant. I get really excited about billing systems. I, I guess you probably don't, but they are amazing things. They do direct behavior, as Angie was saying. We're out here to try and change people behavior. And how might that change? Well, um, the same government uh, back in, I was doing the flotation of Norweb in 1989, 90, 91, too. For those of you too old to remember, there were 12 regional electricity companies surrounding the Central Electricity Generating Board back then, and I was handling, well, two of those privatizations, leading on one of them. What were we talking about? Smart meters. (laughs) Smart meters were going to change today. Another government policy that was never delivered. (laughs) Uh, It's now on your plans to deliver in, what, another five years, as I recall, or four? Um, So this is what I mean about policy. So all the companies that started in 1990 went bust because smart meters were never required. Um, But government didn't pick them up. Where, Where I'm going on this, though, is that I think that we will get to those smart meters and that smart technology on energy and all that through a combination of finance and all the Internet of Things, and I'm not too sure that I'll wait around for DEC or any other government department to do it. We'll have to do it ourselves.
0: Very good. It's quarter to eight. It's time to draw this to a close. Let me, first of all, thank uh, our speakers, Nick Robbins, Angie Ridgewell, and Michael Minelli, for sharing their thoughts and their wisdom with us this evening. Um, I certainly learned a lot. I think we roamed liberally and interestingly uh, through the topic. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And uh, this was billed as one in a series, so I hope we see you all back at the next seminar on this topic. Thanks, and have a good evening, everybody.